Tonight is the evening that Susie was going to give a talk, and I'll be speaking, not exactly channeling, but speaking about the themes that she was going to bring forward. And at one or two points during the talk, I'll actually bring forth some of her own reflections that we have just received by conventional technology rather than advanced meditative technology. (laughs) So the theme of the talk tonight is moving from samadhi practice and insight practice to awakened awareness, another name for radiant mind. And I want to give a little bit of further attention to samadhi practice and some further attention to the three ways of seeing that we've been looking at, particularly anatta, the third of the three, which Aaron rendered as lack of self-referencing, often translated as not-self. And I'll say, I'll give a little more detail on that and and how to practice it as well. I'll suggest how samadhi practice and insight practice in their own internal development, as we deepen in them, move into something else, move into qualities of awareness and knowing that go beyond uh, the structure of samadhi practice, that go beyond the structure of the three ways of seeing. Particularly, they go beyond the structure of knower and known, move into a a way of knowing that we could call more non-dual. But they have a kind of uh, inner development that points towards this radiant mind or this awakened awareness. I'm thinking of a line that I heard from uh, Joseph Goldstein's teacher, Munindra, like over, over 35 years ago. He said more or less, breathe and know that you are breathing and the whole of the Dharma is revealed. There's a kind of a natural progression when we stay with it. So I'll talk some about that movement and then some about what we're calling radiant mind or awakened awareness, its nature, how we understand it, and then point to some practical ways that we can access awakened awareness. And in a way, tonight is giving an overview, we might say a kind of a map And then tomorrow, actually in the morning, we'll particularly work with anatta. And then in the afternoon, we'll start to work with some of the methods for accessing awakened awareness and continue on with that the rest of tomorrow and then the further day beyond that, which is called Saturday. (laughs) Anyone lost track? If you have, this is a sign of meditative progress. So So maybe first, I just had one further word about samadhi practice. I found something from Achan Cha, who was this great mischievous teacher in the Thai forest tradition, who I I had the pleasure of uh, studying with for a short time. Um, And I'm going to... I think maybe later tonight I'll put up some pictures on the wall, but I, I brought some photos. This is Achan Cha. 
He was uh, the teacher of Jack Kornfield and, and uh, Achan Semedo, uh, Achan Amaro, Achan Pasano, some of the teachers you know. He was uh, somewhat of a coyote-type figure and uh, mischievous. And I'll, I'll bring out some of his wisdom a few times during the evening because one of our, uh, one of our uh, ways that we've received these teachings on awakened awareness is through the Thai forest tradition. <clears throat> but he said this about samadhi practice. If you have enough samadhi to read a book, you have enough to be enlightened. That, that's the end of the quote. <laughs> so, okay, so that's, anyone not qualify? <laughs> okay, so, okay, there you are. So, um, so then a few other words about insight practice. Um, Aaron and Susie and I all like this way of talking about three ways of seeing or there's a, a book which will be on the reading list we'll give out in two days by uh, the uh, British uh, teacher, Rob Berbea, called Seeing That Freeze. And we very much like that term. That is really the essence of insight practice. It's seeing that frees or seeing that liberates. And in the tradition, the three main forms of seeing that free are precisely what we're studying in this second section of the retreat. That is inquiry into impermanence, inquiry into dukkha, practice, exploring, opening up to dukkha, and opening up to uh, a not-to-her-not-self. And one of the benefits of this kind of practice is that it can really, I think as we've said a few times, bring forth the quality of investigation and of interest. It can really help our practice tremendously. We can really be looking, have that aspect of curiosity, of interest, which enlivens practice. Um, at times, there can be tendencies in our insight practice and in our mindfulness practice, sometimes just to kind of have a calm, relaxing, peaceful, dull sitting. Does anyone relate to this? I, not necessarily on the retreat, but especially in daily life, right? You know, it's just, I kind of sat there, I was a little bit distracted, but it was kind of calm, felt good. And um, when we bring the quality of investigation, that can shift and we have interest and we actually, oh, oh, let's look at this. Let's look at that. And it really, in a very everyday manner, can bring life, energy, interest to our practice. So, um, you know, you could take home these practices of working with impermanence and dukkha, not self, you know, and work with them for each for a week. And it can really um, build that quality of investigation and and curiosity. One other aspect about the insight practice is that it really points, and I think Aaron really suggested this as well, that the uh, issue, as it were, of human life in this approach, the, as it were, the core quote-unquote problem is ignorance. It's not seeing. It's not seeing in a way that binds us. It's not seeing clearly. It's being confused by our conditioning, by our habits, you know, our personal, psychological, familial, cultural conditioning to see in a certain way and can be understood as, in certain ways, a form of ignorance. We don't see our deep nature. No. Specifically, we don't see these three ways that phenomena appear. Quite specifically, we, one of the ways that we don't, reasons we don't see clearly is because our minds are overly distracted. And we're very subject to conditioning. 
And so the samadhi, again, plays a very important role to cut through distraction, cut through conditioning, <clears throat> and let us see. But it's actually, I would say, a opti- very optimistic view of human nature. <clears throat> yes, there's ignorance, but there is also the possibility of training and insight. Indeed, insight that can go, can go to the depths. <clears throat> And it's interesting that it really is, a, I think, a very optimistic model of human nature, of the nature of our being. And I, I sometimes uh, contrast this model of ignorance with a, another prevailing model, I think, in, in Western culture, probably in, in many cultures, which is that the problem is evil, that the core problem of human life is evil. And this approach is different. It's more optimistic. Ultimately, it's holding that the depths of love and wisdom, at least in their seeds, even if they're covered over, are there with every being. And it can be, you know, a very uh, different approach that we follow when when we have this understanding of ignorance. I was just thinking of something like the prison system, for example, which, you know, from friends who've worked at San Quentin and other prisons, they say that, you know, our um, own attitude towards prison sort of flip-flops every 30 or 40 or 50 years between the attitude that people can actually learn and change in prison, which is, you know, the original idea, you know, the words like reformatory, penitentiary, all have religious basis, right? Meaning that there's the idea of change versus the idea that these are bad people who should be punished. Right now we're in the punishment bad people phase in prisons, right? And it's you know, predictable what that does, you know, and you can count it with you know, looking at recidivism rates and so forth. So interesting that, that this approach is really could be, I think is being used, could be a beautiful model for work in prisons, right? And it is. People are using these practices in prisons as well as, as with many other places. <clears throat> Insight practice is also, to a significant extent, based in concentration. There is, let me see where this quotation is. <clears throat> From the Buddha. Practitioners develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. So you see again that basis that samadhi lets us see clearly. And what does one understand as it really is? And in this passage, what does he do? He goes through, one sees that the eye is impermanent. He goes through the different senses, talks about impermanence, then talks about dukkha, then talks about not-self develop concentration, then work with these three ways of seeing. Probably the fundamental model in the traditional text, in the tradition as a whole. So a few more uh, quick words on impermanence and dukkha, and then a little bit more on uh, anatta. I think Aaron pointed to that there really can be multiple forms of impermanence practice. And we, we didn't talk so much about working with what we might call gross impermanence. It can be a very valuable practice. It can be more of a reflective practice, which is done in a lot of traditions where one reflects on change. You look at uh, and you look how everything arises, everything passes, you know. Uh, the seasons arise and pass. I was going to say presidential elections rise and pass. (laughs) But I hope that's not triggering. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, You know, countries, cultures arise and pass. We arise and pass. All sorts of, everything arises and passes. And reflecting just in a very ordinary way for 
10 minutes a day or maybe 10 minutes later today or tomorrow it can be a very valuable way to contemplate impermanence. I did it once for two years, every day 10 minutes. It really had an effect of just being in touch with this. You know, people I love will arise and pass. It brings in reflection at times on death. And again, a very traditional practice can be very, very powerful, very ordinary in a certain way. If, you, if that resonates with you, you could add that to your list of practices related to impermanence. <clears throat> you know, and then we also, especially here, we work with the sense of moment-to-moment experiential impermanence you know, around a given sense. How do, how do we experience the arising and passing with sound, <clears throat> with sensation, with thinking? You know? how, do we, how do we experience that? Can we just hang out? And it's really the sustained hanging out with impermanence, which can be transformative. It's not that we're supposed to have, you know, a sudden <clears throat> burst of insight and say, oh, I got impermanence, <laughs> right? It's more like, but the cumulative doing of it really can be transformative. And I, I find it a very joyful practice just to hang out, you know, and some of you may even want to do that in a retreat, hang out for three days, five days, seven days, just with impermanence. You know, working with the different senses, you can work with all the senses together at times if the mind is fairly stable. As Aaron mentioned, with dukkha, both of us like the translation of dukkha as reactivity. I think it conveys probably the core of the meaning. In the, in the text, there are multiple meanings for dukkha. But I think for me, the, uh, the most important one is of dukkha as a kind of uh, reactivity towards what's happening in the present moment. Aaron used the word, what, friction or burning, or we could say a resistance to the present moment that makes us either grab hold of it or push it away. And it's interesting that we can see grasping as indicating some dissatisfaction with the present moment, right? You know, I want and I, I need to have. Much like the pushing away, that's more obvious that that is related to uh, resistance to the present moment. and. I like um, the translation of reactivity, even though it's not literal, probably for two reasons. Uh, one of them is that it brings forth the, both of these ways that we resist the present moment, both the pushing away and the grabbing hold, whereas um, the usual translation of dukkha is suffering, which doesn't convey that, right? It conveys more the uh, resistance to the unpleasant, right? Suffering also can be confusing because it it doesn't bring out the distinction between the presence of the unpleasant and the reaction to the unpleasant. They're different. Sometimes we make a technical distinction and call one pain and one suffering. But the distinction is crucial to our practice because we can't get rid of the unpleasant in our lives. But we can work in a powerful way to transform reactivity and have much less reactivity. Yeah. And some of you know the teaching, which is one of my favorite teachings, which brings us out very clearly. This is the teaching of the two arrows, sometimes called the two darts, which um, I like very much. I like the teaching very much. And it goes like this. The Buddha um, asked practitioners a question. Everyone experiences the unpleasant how is a non-practitioner different from a practitioner? Everyone experiences the unpleasant. As was common in his discourses, uh, they did not answer his question. So he said, okay, I'll answer it myself. Um, He said more or less, yes, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. And he said, this is like being shot by an arrow, the arrow of unpleasant experiences. And he called this the first arrow. 
And he said, yes, we sometimes have unpleasant sensations in the body. We have unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant emotions. We can have unpleasant interactions. We can have unpleasant um, experiences of different kinds. We can have uh, injustice, be treated unfairly. All of these occur to us, you know, different amounts to different people. And he said, this is like a given. It's very much like what Aaron was talking about, talking about the flavor of the experience. We, we at times all have unpleasant experiences. In that, the non-practitioner and their practitioner are the same. How do they differ? The non-practitioner, which means us also when we're not exactly practicing, <laughs> the non-practitioner, because of the presence of the first arrow, tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help. That, and technically, the first arrow we could call pain, the second arrow is suffering. The second arrow is when I have an unpleasant sensation in my body and I tense, you know? And with some types of chronic pain, I've heard physicians say that as much as 80% of what people experience as pain is not the original sensation, but it's the tensing and the reaction. That's obvious to us with emotional pain, right? We have a difficult emotional experience and we react to it for the next three hours or three days or three years, right? Could be way more than 80%, right? And so that's familiar, right? And we, and again, we call that the second arrow and we can train not to shoot the second arrow. We can train to, um, partly by being able to be present with the unpleasant and learn not to react and when it's skillful to be with it. And we can see how that works. And we can learn to be more and more non-reactive. And so that teaching really brings out how the problem isn't the first arrow, but it's the second arrow. And that's why when we use the word suffering in English, it's confusing for people whether it's the first arrow or the second arrow. We use the word suffering often to mean pain in the body, just unpleasant sensations. I'll just mention one other way of practicing. So you might, you know, actually when I, I'll say when I work with people one-on-one, the most common guidance that I give is you've had something difficult happen, watch out for shooting the second arrow. If you made that the center of your practice, it would go a very, very long way. And it's really a way of working with dukkha. Something unpleasant happens on this retreat. Watch the tendency to shoot the second arrow. It's a way of practicing. Let me say a few words also about anatta. And um, I find it of these three, conceptually the most confusing of the three. It's such that I think this is common among teachers at Spirit Rock. When we're in a group or a retreat and we feel a question on anatta coming our way, we brace ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, because it's, it's it's a very confusing, it's a very confusing theme. Um... There's, uh, let me see where this is. There's a, there are a lot of ways that it's confusing and I've kind of been interested in collecting forms of confusion. This is one of my favorite. This is from, I think this is from the internet. This is from the, um, the canon of Jewish Buddhist humor. The Torah says, Love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says there is no self. So maybe we're off the hook. 
And even, you know, sometimes you'll even hear the teaching is about no self, which I think is, is, can be really confusing. It's, not an, it's actually not a good translation. And it's confusing for all sorts of other reasons, you know. And even in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes other words are used which sure sound like there's uh, some kind of a self there that you'll find the, um, someone who has a high level of spiritual development in the text of the Buddha is called a maha-atta. Atta is the word for self. So what does that mean? That's like a great self. I thought there wasn't supposed to be a self. <laughs> you know, that, that was the term that was used for Gandhi, right? Mahatma Gandhi, same term, right? And so you have quite a few of these. You can look to different, uh, um, I won't even go through the words. There's another one, you know, another high-level development is called a developed self. And they use these terms. So like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, can't you be consistent, Buddha? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so what's, what's happening? And not to mention that, uh, you know, in Western psychology, uh, self is often used as a quite neutral term. You know, even ego is used also as a very neutral term. And yet we sometimes use ego as something negative. You know, we want to get rid of the ego, right? And it's confusing because in part of the culture it's neutral, part of the culture it's bad. You know, sometimes the self... Uh, means different. It means means ten different things. Okay. So my approach uh, that I have found useful in working with anatta is primarily practical, and it really has like two parts that I have found useful. And I, I have found useful to use the metaphor of thinning the sense of self and looking for the thick self. Those are the kind of practices I'll introduce tomorrow. And that makes it more practical and less conceptual. So a few words about thinning the self. It's really about experiencing without a strong sense of self or with a less strong sense of self. And what's interesting is that I think we experience this all the time. Particularly when we're really engaged in an activity, including meditation, when we're washing the dishes, particularly when we're doing something that like is our main work, there can be very little sense of self. And you know, some of you know the uh, uh, psychologist, uh, the Hungarian psychologist, uh, Csikszen Mahalaji, who developed this, the uh, concept of flow. And flow, when you look at it carefully, is very much a sense of a very thinned out self or what, like Aaron was using, lack of self-referencing. And when I think if we look carefully, we'll see that actually probably the most meaningful experiences of our lives have had thinned out self. When we're deeply in the natural world and feel very little self-consciousness and really connected. When we're, we experience the lack of boundaries in human connection, in love, and with someone we're very close to. We, that is a kind of thinned out self, not much sense of self-consciousness, just a fullness of being, but without much sense of self. The fullness of creativity. You know, when I've talked about this in the, the Wednesday group that I teach here at Spirit Rock, I ask people, can you think of experiences where you have very little sense of self? And a lot of them point to creative, artistic activity. Some of them point to music. Think of something like jazz, where you're improvising. When it's working, there's very little sense of self. Once you say, oh, that was a really good lick, it's gone, right, at that moment. Once you have self-consciousness, it's gone. And same thing, some people even point to sports. I have a a friend named um, Andrew Cooper who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone which is because you find this since playing in the zone means basically where you're in a particular uh, athletic event and also there's almost no sense of self, right? And you're just, the, the idea of flow is that you're fully engaged, it's virtually effortless, there's zero self-consciousness and you're using your gifts fully. That's actually an interesting way to talk about what, we're, what uh, anatta is. And we can also approach it meditatively. 
And there, you know, some of you, this goes back a little while, but does anyone remember the, I think it was the, uh, it was uh, an NBA finals in which Michael Jordan was playing from the early 90s. And some of you may remember this, but it was, um, it was the finals, I think it was the Chicago Bulls versus the Portland Trailblazers. Anyone from Portland area, I'm sorry if this is painful. <laughs> and Michael Jordan scored like seven straight three-pointers. He was in the proverbial zone where it said the basket is as big as the ocean, right? And he was in the zone and then he, he walked by the scorer's table and he went like this. which indicated, I think, two things. One was that he was basically saying, it's not me, right? The other thing he was saying is, I'm now self-conscious. And he missed his next shot, of course, right? And so that's one way to get at this sense of uh, anatta by can we open to experience increasingly with a, a, a less thick sense of self? Can we move to a, a more thin sense of self. And one of the ways we do this meditatively is that we can actually just try to be with the constituents of experience without adding commentary or reactions. So, okay, there's a thought. Okay, there is a body sensation. There is an emotion. I and mean, this is really the core of what we do in mindfulness practice. We just try to track what's happening without commentary, reaction, and so forth. And this was actually the main way that the Buddha taught anatta through the model of the aggregates, which were the, you know, he saw them as the five constituents of experience, which were, you know, the form, the body, the feeling tone, that flavor of experience, which um, Aaron was talking about, perception, thoughts and emotions, and consciousness. And he said, can you just be with experience and let one thing after another happen without bringing the self in. And that was the training. And we'll do a version of that tomorrow. <clears throat> that very, that's the core training. And again, it's at the heart of our mindfulness practice. And then the other side of the practice, uh, again, in this simplified, very practical way, we thin out the self, and then we, we look for when the self is thick. And we notice it, and we try to notice it and release the thickness. And so what are the times when the self is thick? We could think maybe of when there's a kind of, a thick is, an, is a, another way of just saying there's a strong sense of self. You know, some things that occur to me, there's a strong sense of self when we're self-conscious, when there's self-image, when there's reactivity, right? Maybe interpersonally when there's polarization, right? You know, or sometimes self-judgment or judging another. There's a very strong sense of me and the other person. And there's also sometimes a strong sense of self when there's something that occurs in our experience which is more like a wound or something difficult from our experience. So I want to be clear here that a thick sense of self is not just something that we want to get rid of that's bad. But sometimes the thick sense of self is there because we need to heal that area, you know, and it's, you know, developmentally, there's some work to be done. You know, maybe I was, um, <clears throat> I don't know, there was a divorce in my family when I was six or seven, and I developed, you know, a complex around when someone's close to me, I'll be abandoned. And maybe I'm in a relationship, and my partner wants to go away for the weekend, and I suddenly get thrust into this old issue about abandonment. And it's a very thick self, but that's calling for healing, right? That's calling for attention. And so I like to think of that thick self more in a developmental sense, not simply as that's bad. And it's, also, it's also an issue around, uh, you know, identity. You know, I, I was thinking last year, I, I was one of the teachers for our two-month retreat. And we had someone ask a question in the hall who was um, a person of color, 
identified as queer. And we had been having these teachings, I think not always with uh, so much nuance about anatta, not self. And this person said, when I hear the teaching of anatta, I'm not sure whether it's the Buddha or the man. Do you know that term, the man? It's like, say, basically the oppressor, right? And that's interesting, isn't it? And so that points, that again, I think, points to a developmental perspective on working with a thick sense of self. Does that make some sense? You know, that these are calling sometimes for work. We want to see the thick sense of self, but it's not just see this thick sense of self, get rid of it. We sometimes hear that in Buddhist practice. I think sometimes we call that spiritual bypassing. Do you know that term? It's important. <clears throat> and so these, for me, these are a, um, a nice way of keeping the teaching on anatta practical. And tomorrow, I think we'll follow that kind of um, distinction of the, these two main ways of forming. We'll thin out experience, and we'll invite that thinning, and we'll also invite us to look for the thick sense of self. As we do samadhi practice and insight practice, there's a way in which it tends to move towards a way of knowing which goes beyond it. There's a way in which when we develop further with samadhi practice and the samadhi deepens, we start to be able to see the object, the breath, starts to become less solid. I mentioned this, and I think in my, my earlier talk, the breath can be less solid. It can even start to be like more like a field of energy, sometimes vibrating, sometimes being like, like a bunch of pixels. <laughs> You know, and the breath can almost turn into a kind of impermanent flow. So when we do samadhi practice, sometimes it takes us right into impermanence practice just by deepening samadhi. And sometimes when we stay with that impermanence practice, the breath almost becomes just like energy. And at a certain point, it almost becomes like a field of awareness as it deepens that can be a natural development as the samadhi practice deepens. And there's a similar way in which when we stay with insight practice, again, when, like the samadhi practice, when it starts to become more automatic, the kind of samadhi practice I'm talking about, it's not something which we expect in two days. It can, it can, it take, can take some time to develop, but it can develop in that way. And similarly, when we stay for a longer period of time with the impermanence practice, the dukkha practice, and the anatta practice, it can start to open up where the arising and passing of phenomena starts to be happening more quickly, starts to move outside of a conceptualized, <clears throat> a conceptualized world. <clears throat> where we're seeing objects, we're noting thoughts. <clears throat> thank you, thank you, water. <laughs> um, as the impermanence practice develops, it becomes less conceptual. Maybe some of you have noticed this, it becomes the objects tend to be less solid and, and things happen a little more quickly. And the noticing of change and impermanence can be more automatic. We're not doing anything, but we're just tracking. And the impermanent flow is happening, but it's beneath the level of concepts. And as we follow that, there's still a structure of knower and known, of subject and object. But sometimes when we stay with that, we relax some, the tracking, and it also can open up just to a field of awareness. And we'll actually work with a practice like this uh, tomorrow afternoon. 
This is one of the ways that we access what we call awakened awareness. I'm using the term awakened awareness, I think, that I'll use, and I'm using it somewhat as a synonym for radiant mind. What it's pointing to is a kind of awareness that is beyond the typical structure of knowing, in which the usual division of knower and known, of subject and object, isn't there in the same way. And I was uh, reflecting on different words that are used in different approaches and traditions for this kind of awareness. Uh, And their words, we use the word radiant mind, which comes from the Thai forest tradition. Use the word awakened awareness. In the Thai forest tradition, they also talked about the primal mind. Achan Cha talked about the old mind. In the Tibetan tradition, there are terms used like uh, the nature of mind in the Mahamudra tradition in Tibetan practice. Sometimes non-dual awareness. Sometimes primordial purity. You get a sense this is a good thing. (laughs) Um, But there there are all these different kinds of words. Uh, Another term in the Tibetan tradition is the natural state. And here we're going to be using a few ways to access this type of awareness. And the the aim is to just have some entry into the territory, to have some glimpses of this kind of awareness. And I'll talk a little bit more about it in in a moment. And I'm going to use these terms as something like synonyms, and I'll primarily use the term awakened awareness. Within some of these traditions, there actually are distinctions between some of the terms that I've used. They're not exactly all the same, but they're in the same territory. And so here the purpose will be to have some access routes and hopefully have some glimpses of this nature of awareness. Let me say a little bit more about it and then some some ways to access it. We find this kind of awareness talked about by the Buddha, but not centrally. The core teaching that we know from the tradition is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths and, and maybe associated teachings like dependent origination. But there's also somewhat on the margins a teaching about a different kind of awareness than the usual one. And the Buddha used the term vinanam anidasanam anantam sabato pabihan. And the translation would be vinyana is the word for consciousness. Remember I talked uh, two days ago, about how usually consciousness is the knowing of an object. It's subject-object um, division. And this other kind of consciousness, as talked about in the text, doesn't have that structure. We would say it's more non-dual. And the translation of those terms is generally that it's signless, boundless, and luminous. That is a quality of awareness which has luminosity, which has this boundlessness, like we were starting to explore with the radiant, radiating metta, which is, again, one of the access routes to this type of awareness. This is from the Buddha, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. Those are the words I quoted. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. He's basically saying it's beyond concepts. 
the, the mind is moved from ordinary mind with concepts into non-ordinary mind beyond concepts. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form are wholly destroyed. Again, we can interpret this as meaning that we're beyond a conceptual realm, and yet there's still experience. There's still something occurring. Another passage, where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold. When a sage has come to know this through one's own wisdom, one is freed from attachment to pleasure and pain. So it's connected with there being no reactivity and no suffering. It's a kind of awareness. Susie asked for the one thing to be communicated tonight was that in her difficult medical condition where there was quite a lot of pain, she found awakened awareness as a refuge. And she said, it's always there. And that's part of our purpose here in introducing this. It can, as we strengthen it, become a refuge because it's a place beyond reactivity, beyond suffering, actually beyond any, really any sense of self. And yet there's a sense of luminosity and of, of love and of clarity. Another passage from the Buddha. When the sun rises and a shaft of light is entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall, sir. And if there is no western wall, on the ground, sir. And if there is no ground, on the lake, sir. And if there is no lake, it does not land. In the same way, consciousness does not land or grow. That awareness is free from sorrow, free from suffering, free from dukkha. And so again, it's pointing to beyond the usual habitual mind, beyond what we could call ordinary mind. And it's luminous. In the Thai forest tradition, this is developed through an understanding of what was sometimes called radiant mind or primal mind or the old mind. This is from Achan Man, who was the teacher of Achan Cha, and who was a wandering yogi who lived from, I think, uh, 1879 to 1950, and wandered through Thailand, through the old rainforest, through Burma, doing this deep practice, you know, wandering through the forest, just doing his practice. World War II was in Burma, probably not so far away. He was just hanging out with radiant mind, (laughs) you know. And this is from him. Practitioners, this mind is originally radiant and clear, but because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance. And so it's partly why we do the samadhi work and the insight work is that that's partly a clearing. And all of our practice in many ways is a clearing And the idea is that this actual radiant mind isn't something created or invented or produced, but it's actually there all the time right now, but it's covered over. That's the understanding. That's why it's always a refuge. And so what we do in our practice is we do a combination of clearing out some of the obscurations and the habits and the conditioning and then also opening, finding ways to access it, to touch it. And I think actually we've all touched it at different points in our lives. Because, uh, and in fact, when I teach on this, sometimes people say, oh yeah, gosh, that was a really confusing experience I had when I was 21. And it actually was having this surface, but not knowing what it was. And some of you may know that. I mean, I can recall experiences I had as a child that were something like this. I would be on the beach and I would be lying down with the sun like as a 10-year-old 
and I would go into a kind of a trance and it would be filled with light and very pleasant and it may have been touching something like that. And there may be ways that we have experienced this. Achan Cha studied with Achan Man for three days, this great teacher. Um, Achan Cha, who, who uh, was born about 1918, so he was maybe in his, uh, I think in his uh, probably 20s, late 20s, when he heard about this great teacher wandering in the forest. And of course, you know, how do you find a great teacher wandering in the forest through Thailand and Burma? You know, didn't have email, you know. And so he went looking for him. It took like seven weeks, I think. He said, okay, has Achan Man come around? Okay. How do, you, how do you find it? How do you find a wandering teacher with a little group of people? So he eventually found him. I think this was like 1946 or something, somewhere around then. And he eventually found him. And I have some pictures I'll put up about Chan Man as well. And um, he found him. And he asked, he asked to study with him. Unfortunately, they were members of different Thai sects of Buddhism. And they have their politics, and you couldn't actually stay with someone, with a teacher from the different sect without giving up your sect. And Achan Sa said, I want to give up and just study with you. And Achan Man said, your group needs some good meditators. Stay there. And under the regulations, he could stay with him for three days. So he said, you know, this is where we have the, uh, the secret pith instructions. You know, he had to get very quick, get the essence, what might have been 20 years of training, okay, three days. And he said, there are phenomena And there is awareness which knows the phenomena. Know the awareness separate from the phenomena. Tune into the awareness separate from the phenomena. And you will discover the radiant mind. And so you kind of like practice that for the next seven years. (laughs) And we'll use a variant of that uh, teaching uh, tomorrow because it's actually pretty simple, you know. There are phenomena occurring. We mostly are preoccupied with the phenomena, like in the insight practice, right? Watch the arising and passing. What happens when you turn the gaze to the awareness itself? It's one of the ways of accessing this that we'll, that we'll look at. <clears throat> we also find this sense of radiant mind or awakened awareness in the uh, Tibetan tradition sometimes talked about as the natural state or the nature of mind. Here, let me see, I have a nice reading from um, one of the great teachers in the Tibetan tradition named Long Chenpa, who lived in the 14th century. This is his understanding. Awakened mind is by nature primordial, primordially pure. The true nature of phenomena is such that there is nothing to discard or adopt, nothing that comes and goes, nothing to achieve by trying. Rather, the sun and the moon of utter lucidity arise when one rests naturally in the spacious expanse that is the true nature of phenomena. <clears throat> And there's this sense that this awareness, unlike the concentrated state, doesn't eliminate anything. At first we tune in to this awareness and then we let the awareness and the phenomena simply be there, but there's not a knower and a known. There's not that structure. And in a way, the phenomena occur Thoughts come, 
emotions come, sensations come in the state of awakened awareness, but there's zero reactivity. And when we're in that meditative state, there in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about self-arising, self-liberating. Something arises in awareness, there's no grabbing hold of it, no pushing away, it arises, it has its own trajectory, it passes away. And we're not tracking the passing, it's just occurring. So just I'll close with just pointing to a few ways of accessing this awakened awareness, and then we'll explore this in the, in the afternoon. There are a lot of different ways to access this. We have already mentioned a few. The radiating metta developed over time can access it. The tuning in to the awareness, that's knowing phenomena, but tuning into the awareness side, making that like the foreground and let phenomena be in the background, that's a way of accessing it. In some traditions, they're actually uh, what, because this is said to be present all the time, you can sometimes access it in very natural states. In the Tibetan tradition, um, it's often pointed to that you can access awakened awareness if you really track your mind when you yawn. We're not going to, I hadn't planned to tomorrow just all yawn together, but why not? It could work. Because the idea is there's certain times in ordinary experience, another one would have been we're totally exhausted and the mind is just spent, right? But you're still aware. Those are times actually you can tune in. Another time is when you're startled. And you, if you track for the awareness right after the moment of being startled, sometimes you can see that awakened awareness. So some of the techniques that are used sometimes are to have everyone just be present and then... Okay, how many... <laughs> you know? And so, so there, there, you can see there can be some playfulness, can't there? Right, with this. It's... Um, Um, the basic trajectory is we find some ways of accessing this and we'll, I think, present five or six ways and all you need is one that works. They're probably, you know, among, in the traditions, they've been collected probably, you know, hundreds and hundreds of techniques. I've mentioned a few. When I did a one-month-long Tibetan retreat in what's called Mahamudra, there were eight methods presented for accessing. We're going to probably present five or six you just need to find one that can give you some glimpses. And the trajectory is you first get some glimpses and you use the method, get some more glimpses, get some more glimpses. And as you have a basis, particularly in having done the samadhi and the insight practice, and I should say that um, the glimpses of this are pretty accessible having the glimpses last longer, have greater stability and more duration, depends quite a bit on having done samadhi practice and insight practice. That's why we have this sequence. Because if you're lost in conceptual mind, or if that's strong, you have to work on that first. Because you can have glimpses, but it won't stabilize very much. And so the trajectory is, have glimpses, stabilize gradually in formal meditation practice, and especially on retreats. Stabilize more and more, stabilize more and more, gradually start bringing it into daily life. And having explored this for a lot of years, when you stay with it, it works. It's not always quick. I have to say that. But I can, I can see my own history and it's, um, if you stay with it and have good guidance, it can, really, it can really move in this direction. So here, we're looking for the glimpses in this retreat. And some of you have, have practiced this more and may have it developed further. So we have, we have these various different methods. Another method that's sometimes used is using words 
that evoke this open sense. In Tibetan tradition, these are called dohas, which are like little poems that come from the awakened state and that the very words sometimes evoke that sense of awareness. You know, often when I practice, I use five lines that <clears throat> come from uh, a 16th century practitioner named uh, Dagpo Tashinamgyal. And the lines are, are these. <clears throat> and see, so just let these touch you, touch your awareness. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. And so sometimes I practice and I would say those to myself every 20 minutes. It's a little bit like it's another access, words or another access route. It's interesting. So I've named probably probably four or five. And so what we'll be doing is exploring these different access routes. And in the talk tomorrow, we'll have a little more, some further understanding of the access routes and how to keep working with this. And you know, during the um, practice sessions, we'll again work with a sequence of grounding and samadhi in the insight practice and then opening to the uh, awakened awareness, at least, at least for glimpses. <clears throat> so let me finish with uh, just two readings. <clears throat> The first is from the, uh, I think from the uh, 11th century in India from a, a teacher named Talopa. Who was the teacher of Naropa for whom Naropa Institute or Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado is named after. And Naropa was the teacher of Marpa, and Marpa was the teacher of Milarepa, and it goes right up to the present. Milarepa is the great uh, Tibetan yogi, Herman. How many people know of Milarepa? Yeah. And so this is, this is at the beginning of that lineage, one of the great lineages that teaches this. <clears throat> In the early practice, the mind is like a stream rushing through a gorge. In the middle, the mind is like the river Ganges flowing along gently. At the end, the mind is like the rivers joining the ocean, like the reunion of daughters with their mother. And then last from Achan We are practicing to reach the old mind. That's his term. We are practicing to reach the old mind. This original mind is unconditioned. In it, there is no good or bad, long or short, black or white. But we are not content to remain with this mind because we don't look at and understand things clearly. The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. We are not tranquil because we are excited over sense objects and we end up as slaves to the changing mental states that result. So practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, the old thing. It is finding our old home, the original mind that does not waver and change following various phenomena. It is by nature perfectly peaceful. It is something that is already within us.
So our journey continues and we uh, will be opening up, uh, as it were, a new territory, but we'll be continually, as it were, um, staying with the territory we've already developed because it's really uh, a basis for going further. So thank you kindly for your attention and thank you, Susie, for your contribution. And um, we have a little less than half hour of walking and we'll come back, we'll do another session of radiating metta tonight. Probably close to the full amount of time, right? Thank you again for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.